Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast. I'm your host, Frank Giles, and I'm joined as always by Michael Rogers. He's the director of the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alfred. Welcome, Michael. Oh, thank you, Frank. So right now, you know, we're in December. Growers are out in the groves. The flower bud advisories have started up, and, you know, a lot of this this time of year is caretaking for the trees and also trying to get these trees uh, rehabbed and take, you know, after these hurricanes. So just talk a little bit about what you're hearing out there in, from growers in the groves. Yeah, thanks, Frank. And, uh, uh, you know, there's there's a mixed bag of, of, of information coming out from folks, uh, depending on where they are in the state, following these hurricanes we've had this year. And, and it's really important that growers um, uh, think about what they need to be doing in the groves right now to kind of rehabilitate the trees, as you mentioned. Um, we've got folks who, further south and to the west, you know, suffered a lot of severe wind damage, lost a lot of fruit, and, and even some structural damage to trees. And as you move further inland, we hear more about uh, flooding issues with some of the trees. But but I've seen even been with some growers, even in central and Polk County in some areas, that, that have had still starting to see a lot, have seen a lot of, of fruit drop after the fact. And it wasn't just a week after the, the storms passed. Sometimes it was two, three, four weeks after that we started seeing a lot of fruit drop. So um, there's a lot of concern about this year's crop, obviously. But, you know, we need to be thinking for the future, what can we do now with the trees we have in the ground to prepare them to have a crop in subsequent years? And um, so Dr. Vashish is going to be putting out, uh, she started putting out the flower bud induction advisories. Uh, it's going to be important to, to stay tuned to those um, as the weather patterns, you know, dictate when we're going to have flowering. And, and that plays a role in when you should be doing things like um, some of the nutrition uh, applications in the spring. Um, if you're using gibberellic acid, which I hope people are, uh, the timing of those sprays, um, all that comes into play. And it's going to be a, a changing situation depending on what the weather forecast and the weather patterns are uh, as we get into the winter time. So I really encourage folks to um, stay tuned to what Tripti's putting out there. And also in um, January, I know there will be a, a grower forum here in Lake Alfred that she'll be getting into a lot more information on, on what she's seeing on the research on gibberellic acid and other things for rehabilitating these trees. And so I think growers will want to participate in that if they're able to. Um, she has particularly uh, some good information on uh, the benefits of using gibberellic acid on some of the early season varieties like Hamlin. Uh, she's had a couple years of data now, and we're seeing some real promising um, benefits from the gibberellic acid, uh, you know, on those early season varieties like we thought we were going to see, and and even probably some benefits in areas that didn't have too severe of hurricane damage winds, uh, seeing some of the fruit holding a little bit tighter in some of those areas. So we, we saw some benefits to the gibberellic acid in those areas where the hurricane effects weren't too, too, too severe. Um, obviously, you can't, <laughs> when you have 100 mile an hour plus winds, nothing's going to keep the fruit on the trees, but in the areas where the winds were a little less, we did see some benefits from those applications. Good deal. And, and I know growers that are, you know, taking care of what's in the groves right now, but there's a lot of interest in what's coming down the road and in the pipeline in terms of variety development and the role that biotechnology potentially could could play in bringing some resistance to HLB down the road. But 
give us just a little update where we stand with that. I know there's been some recent interest in that topic that, that you'd like to address. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that's caught everybody's attention is some work recently. There's been a couple of groups uh, in IFAS working on developing, using gene editing or the CRISPR technology to develop new varieties that are resistant to, um, ultimately we want to do for HLB, but but some of the initial work has been done um, developing varieties that are resistant to citrus canker. And in and, and the background, the reason that we were looking at citrus canker first is because we knew what the genes were responsible in citrus for susceptibility to canker disease. So we knew what needed to be changed. You know, we knew the targets. So it was very easy then just to take that as a kind of a proof of concept, make those edits and see if we could actually create these new varieties that would be resistant to canker. And so we've had a couple of uh, scientists, one at Lake Alfred, uh, Dr. Nian Wong, and there's also another scientist down at the uh, Gulf Coast Research and Education Center, uh, Dr. Deng, um, working with Fred Gumitter. Uh, both of these groups have developed some uh, citrus varieties that are that are appear to be resistant to citrus canker, and uh, in particular, uh, just recently uh, we've been working with Dr. Wong uh, to try to move some of that to the field. And um, right now, all the work that's been done, it's all based on you know laboratory studies of these plants um, showing resistance to canker in greenhouse studies. And so I think it's important folks realize that you know this is long-term research and so these these plants haven't been trialed in the field yet to see how well they hold up not only against citrus canker in the field but also to other environmental conditions making sure that nothing else changed in the plant so that they are going to function like we hope they will and so uh, right now we're in the process um, of, of getting some of these these plant materials um, moved into the field uh, through some top working experiments and planting of, of some of these uh, young trees in the, in the groves. And hopefully in the coming year, what, what our plans are is to include um, growers in that process, um, asking growers to uh, collaborate with us um, and plant out some of these, these new variety, these new canker-resistant tamlin uh, plants in their groves. And it's going to be a little while before we get all the permissions from DPI to get that happening, but we're working on that right now. And hopefully in the coming year, we'll see some of those grower trials go out. So growers can get a chance to see how these, these hold up and, um, and down the road, uh, if they do as we hope they will, they'll be available for, for people to start planting on a much larger scale. And so that's, that's for, the, for, for resistance against interest canker anyways. Very good. Anything on the HLB front? Yeah, so HLB, uh, that's still, um, there's a lot of work going on uh, gene editing of plants for resistance to HLB. And um, uh, there was, I heard some rumblings uh, recently, you know, uh, uh, a rumor going around that there will be uh, HLB-resistant plant or gene-edited plant available in the spring. And there's a little bit of truth to that, but the, but the, but the, the thing to know is that um, it'll be available for testing in the lab. Uh, these have been, we think that the scientists have edited the plants and hopefully have made all the right changes so they can start testing these in the lab in the spring. So again, it'll take uh, you know a little bit of time to test these in the in the lab, see if they hold up, and then again if they do, then we'll move on to the next step of moving these to the field uh, to see how they hold up under uh, growing conditions in Florida. Not only not only against HLB but other environmental factors, just to make sure that nothing else has has gone wrong. They they grow like they should, they produce fruit like they should, and it's something that growers can then invest money in. So. Uh, just stay tuned to that. But again, 
you know, these, these are long-term projects. Um, it takes time to get these plants developed and, and to prove they're going to work in the field. And we're working as fast as we can to get this out to growers. But, but again, in the meantime, it's, it's just important for our industry to uh, continue to take care of the trees we have in the field. Um, because it's going to be a while before, if, if we are successful in developing these resistant disease-resistant trees, it's still going to be a little bit of a little while before those are available for purchase. I mean, we're going to get them out as quick as we can. But again, you know, we got to take care of that the trees we have in the ground so our industry can continue to go, move forward. And uh, um, again, uh, we're going to be uh, our programming this, this this spring in IPIS is uh, a lot of a lot of programming to help growers uh, recover from the hurricanes and continue to uh, manage HLB the best that we can. Well, those are some very encouraging developments. Even, even you know, if we've got a little bit of time to get them developed, that is good to hear that that's moving along. Uh, as always, Michael, thank you for joining us, and we'll catch up with you next month. All right. Thank you, Frank. I am joined once again by Tripti Vashith. She is an associate professor of horticultural sciences based at the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alfred. Tripti, welcome. Thank you, Frank. Very good. Well, I know you are involved in the Flower Bud Advisory Program, and um, that that those advisories have started now this time of year. Um, just tell us a little bit about the Citrus Flower Bud Advisories, how growers can utilize them in their production programs. Sure. So Flower Bud Advisories are usually, they start before Thanksgiving and they go until uh, end of February, early March. The goal with these Flower Bud Advisories is to inform growers about the existing conditions in their orchards and what, like, at what stage the flower bud induction is. And flower bud induction is very important, basically, at this time of the year, the trees are perceiving the weather and they are deciding when to flower. And this will, whatever the conditions are right now, is going to decide when the trees would flower. It can also possibly decide the intensity of flower and how long or prolonged the blooms will be. So as the trees are getting ready to flower, it is very important to pay attention to these, uh, what is happening, because then the growers can plan on their pesticide sprays. Also, if the flower flowering happens to happen at the same time when it's going to be rainy, for example, then maybe growers need to be thinking about PFD or when the flowering is happening and the bee activity will be happening, so you need to think about the insecticides that you can use at that time. So flower bud advisories are very important to start planning for your growth management for upcoming spring. Well, you know, this year we've we've had the hurricanes come through, particularly Hurricane Ian, which came right up through the heart of the citrus production areas. How, you know, how is that affecting flowering, and, and does that show up in the advisory system? So, yes, the hurricane has been uh, one of the unfortunate wild cards in all of this. Our citrus uh, trees, HLB-affected trees, are already in a stress stage, and then the hurricane has added another layer of stress. The wind damage that the trees suffered was quite significant. Now, so that com complicates what will happen with the flowering. And I have tried to elaborate a little bit about it in the advisory. So you will see that in the advisory, and I have explained it 
very well there. The problem is that with the hurricane, we lost a lot of leaves. And whenever we lose a lot of leaves, the tree puts its resources in pushing more vegetative growth. And you can see all around the state right now that the trees are flushing. You are seeing a lot of vegetative growth happening. Leaves are growing, which means that the trees are depleting their carbohydrate reserves in producing more leaves. So we lost the leaves that would have supported the flowers. And now instead now the tree has the reserve that the tree had is actually being utilized in making more leaves altogether, which means flowering might be a little bit at a lesser level because the tree may not have as much carbohydrate levels. But on the other side, we have also lost a lot of fruit with the hurricane damage. So the trees may start flowering early. So I'm expecting to see a prolonged bloom this year, uh, small waves but early on in the season, unfortunately. So that, that gets to my next question. How typ Typically, how long do the, do the advisories last, and how long do you expect them to run this year? So generally, the advisories would be from before Thanksgiving, you know, November 15th till early March. It really depends on the induction once a high induction period has reached, which means more than 900 induction hours or so, then then you already know 60 days from there, roughly, you will see flowering. Now, in this case, because if we are going to see a few cohorts of flowering, um, I will keep produce, uh, putting out these advisories, just not based on the weather, but also what we are seeing in the field. Uh, after a level... Um, there's only so much that can be done from the growth management point because if you have few flowers all the time from February, uh, growers, they, they are limited options, unfortunately. Uh, as of now, my plan is to continue these bud advisories until March 15th, and at, the ta at that time I expect us to be at the end of the peak bloom. So, Tripti, to you, uh, if a grower is interested in receiving these advisories, what do they need to do? So these advisories are posted on Citrus Research and Education website every fortnight, so every 15 days. The last advisory was posted on the Friday, December 2nd. The next one will be coming up on in two weeks. They are posted on CREC website. Also, our agents do circulate them in their newsletters, so that would be the other way to find it. Very good. Well, let's move on from uh, the Citrus Bud advisories. I know growers are out uh applying the plant growth regulators, and you've been very involved in that research with gibberellic acid. You know, as we're getting, winding up the year, uh, what are some of the tips that you would have for growers that are, are, are applying the PGRs right now? Yes. So actually, in regards to gibberellic acid, there is one thing that our growers can do right now, but it depends where they are and how, how much uh, hurricane damage their trees withstood. So let's talk about the growers in central Florida, where there was relatively less damage than the southwest Florida. So if your trees have not lost a whole lot of canopy, and I think use of gibberellic acid at this time of the year might be a good thing. When I say this time, maybe in a week or two weeks by December 15th or so. And what you what this spray would do is reduce the flowering. 
And we do know that with HLB-affected trees, we have seen if we can suppress some level of flowering, it just reserves the carbohydrates better. And then you may get a better yield over years and you may have a better canopy. So use of gibberellic acid is one of the good strategies. Another benefit of gibberellic acid would be suppressing that early flowering because we don't want a prolonged bloom. We need want a concise, synchronized bloom, and gibberellic acid can do that. So actually in the advisories, and especially the one that was released on December 2nd, I have added a section that in from December 2nd, one to two weeks, which will put us in December 15th time frame, is a good time to apply gibberellic acid. Now let's talk about the second scenario where the trees have lost a significant amount of canopy. In that case, I would say that maybe gibberellic acid is not your best alternative right now because um, because the tree may not be able to have a whole lot of flowers anyways, since it's depleted in carbohydrate resources, and therefore GA may not be your best uh, option right now. But if you have only lost moderate canopy, then gibberellic acid is a good alternative for everybody. Very good. And um, I know you've been doing some work with uh, tank mixing. And mm -hmm. uh, there's been some questions about from growers about tank mixing and you know what, where that's appropriate. Just talk a little bit about that. Sure. Thank you for asking that because it's quite important. So um, in past one year, I've learned a number of growers are using gibberellic acid. And more interestingly, I'm learning that everybody's using in a different pattern, in a different way. I have also learned many people are doing tank, uh, are tank mixing gibberellic acid. And from the research point of view or in my experiments, I never tank mixed anything because that's how we do the research. We only apply one chemical at a time to see the response. So based on my observations, we have never recommended a tank mixing, but I do know with our growers' experience, some people are tank mixing. Actually, many people are tank mixing, and I have not heard any phytotoxicity response so far other than just one grower. So now we are working on creating a database because we don't have a whole lot of time that I can tank mix GA and try where the phytotoxicity would be. And also there are numerous chemicals that we can tank mix with. So I just don't have time, and in order to save time, we are creating this database where I'm requesting all the growers to share your GA tank mixing experience, what you have tank mixed with, and what type of a response you saw, most likely no phytotoxicity so far that I can say. So I want to have this database so that if next year there are more growers who are encouraged to use GA, they can look at this database and just know, like they can tank mix it with, with few things, because uh, spraying a chemical by itself is one of the most significant costs, and uh, everybody wants to is trying to save money wherever they can. Um, in this database, the information of the grower, where they applied, all of those things will be kept anonymous. So I'm not going to be sharing who applied, what they applied, but the only information that will be shared is what was GA mixed with and what were the weather conditions at that time so that this would be a meaningful information for everybody in the state of Florida. 
So I request our growers, as soon as you see a survey from me about this database, please, please fill that out because it's going to help you and your neighbors and your friends. So please do fill out those surveys. Yeah, those surveys are very helpful. So we hope, uh, encourage everyone out there that's using the products to please, please participate. And with that, Trinity, we appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. I'm joined now by Chris Oswalt. He is a citrus extension agent, and he's based in Polk in Hillsborough County. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Good afternoon, Frank. Glad to be here. Great. Well, you know we're getting into wintertime. We've just put these hurricanes to bed, but uh, as we get into the cooler months, you, you can't help but think about, you know, freezes that, uh, that could come along during the course of the winter. We had a pretty good, pretty good one late last January. Uh, you know, before we get into, you know, managing around cold weather, what were some of the impacts that you heard from growers from that January freeze last year or earlier earlier this year, actually? Yeah, it was back in January. There were there were two Monday mornings towards the end of the month that it got pretty cold. There was um, some frost. And some, along with some of that frost and some of those lower temperatures, there were incidences where we had some defoliation. Uh, we did have some instances where some some wood was split by uh, by the low temperatures. They were cold enough to split some wood. It didn't affect the trees per se, but we did have some small wood that got split. There any of the new flush and the flowers that were exposed to that frost that were, that occurred, that were out when that occurred, there was some damage to that new flush. But I did not hear of any significant fruit damage. does not mean that it did not occur. I just was not aware of any. But we did have a little bit of defoliation, a little bit of split wood, and... Um, and some some damage on some new flush and flowers that happened to be pushed out at the time of those cold temperatures. Yeah, and I heard some some growers say that 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 freeze kind of snuck up on them a little bit. Did you hear that? And is is there ways that they can guard against that in the future cold events? Yeah, well, they always have a tendency sometimes to sneak up on you when the forecast comes out and there's a there's an expectation and then as conditions develop overnight you can end up in situations where you get something that you weren't necessarily expecting and so i would say the best thing is to find a reliable source of weather information wherever that may be whatever source you use just as long as it's consistent so that they're giving you a forecast and you can make specific adjustments for your site or your grove, that's probably the best advice that I have. These these instances when freezes occur, depending on the type of freeze, you can go into the evening, you have a situation where it appears it's gonna the freeze is gonna develop a certain way, and then later on in the evening things change a little bit and that can have an effect. So you really can't let your guard down. But having the con you know a consistent source of a reliable weather information for which you can base the conditions that are going to occur in your grove off of that forecast, that's that's the best advice that I can probably give you at this point is to monitor those forecasts, find you a good one, and pay attention 
to what those forecasts are and how that develops overnight. And then hopefully you won't get caught. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of growers do now have their own weather stations and grows, but uh, the university also has the Florida Automated Weather Network. Um, how useful is that for growers uh, in terms of uh, staying ahead of the weather? Yeah, well, the farm weather stations um, from the University of Florida, those stations actually provide you with real-time weather data from those locations, and that's I consider it very important in being able to determine what the actual conditions are that are occurring over an area and compare those to the conditions that are occurring in your grove. So you can learn a lot about those conditions nearby, especially if those are situations where you have a stable air mass, cold air mass that moves over you. The Fawn Towers have the ability to measure ground temperature, temperature at six feet, and then temperature at 30 feet, which can give you a better idea of the development of an inversion and whether those conditions are calm. And if so, will that inversion develop where you have warmer air aloft and colder air at the surface? So they're generally really good in getting that information. Plus, you'll have a group of stations that you may be interested in, like in Polk and Hillsborough counties where you can look at those and see how the freeze develops overnight because there's specific uh, development in these cold weather events, whether they be radiation type events or advective windy blowing freeze type events, advective events. And you can glean a lot of that information over a larger area based on what those weather stations are doing as long as they are consistent and they you have seen them before and you have an understanding of how those things develop under those freeze conditions. So they could be beneficial to you in as much as seeing, you know, a, a better weather view of the area along with specifically what your particular location is going through. Is it consistent with what you're seeing or is something else going on? In these weather stations that growers are using in their groves now, um, individually or they're getting pretty sophisticated in what they can do and, and track, correct? Yeah, I believe so. They, they're they going to collect the normal parameters that you would be interested in. And of course, there's obviously the, the things that are most concerned during a freeze event is, is the wind blowing. So anemometer on a weather station is important. Is the wind blowing or is the wind calm? You also have the air temperature which is important, along with the dew point. And also, if you're going to use irrigation or water for cold protection, you would want to most definitely have be able to have a wet bulb temperature that's going to be provided by that weather station, hopefully. That's good. And, you know, as the weather, as the weather cools down, um, what are some things that growers need to do for to prepare for winter, like checking on equipment, checking nozzles, that sort of thing. Just, just a, is there a checklist out there, so to speak, that can get them ready for the winter? Well, I think what you want to try to do, in my experience, is that you want to, you want to maintain the the health of your trees going into the winter as best you can. I know we have HLB, and that's a lot more difficult than it used to be. But you want to try to maintain a level of health so that the trees are not water stressed, nutrient stressed. You obviously don't want to do severe pruning in the middle of the winter. You don't want to 
have practices that encourage the trees during warm periods during the winter to stimulate any vegetative growth because then they will lose their tolerance to cold. So you want to keep those types of things in mind. Obviously, if you're going to use water for cold protection and you're using microsprinkler irrigation, you would want to make sure that your pump, your well station, they are all in good repair. The lines, you don't have leaky lines, you don't have broken lines, and you want to make sure that your emitters are functioning properly so they can deliver that water when you need it for cold protection. So as we get into the winter and, and say there is a freeze predicted, uh, what are some of the things that growers need to do immediately to get ready for the, the night that is coming? And what are some of the uh, common mistakes that should be avoided? Well, there are very few things that you do during a freeze. There are typically types of practices when we talk about cold protection, those that are passive and those that are active. The passive kinds of practices are the things that you do ahead of time, whether they be growth selection, rootstock selection, horticultural management, those things. You don't do them at the time of a freeze. You do those ahead of time. They're already set. They're in place. You don't do anything when the freeze occurs. Then there are those active cold protection practices that would be, say, if you had a radiation freeze and you had a wind machine, you would go out and turn on the wind machine during the freeze. That's an active practice. If you still used grow heaters, which we don't, but that historically was one of those active cold protection practices where you would go out and you would go ahead and you would physically light the heaters during a freeze. But today, most all of our cold protection, at least in citrus, is done with microsprinkler irrigation. So obviously, you'd go out there and you would start the irrigation pumps and run the irrigation system, and that would be what you would do at the time of a freeze. The day before the freeze, as I mentioned previously, you would want to make sure your pump stations, your wells, everything's in good repair and operational for the time when you do need to turn that pump on. And typically, you wouldn't do it the day before freeze. You, you'd want to have that in place. You're not going to go out and unplug or unclog you know, 100 acres of emitters unless you've got a fairly large labor force the day before freeze. So you want to make sure those things are taken care of ahead of time. But as far as what you do the time of a freeze, you'll have everything in place, and then you'll run typically a microsprinkler irrigation system for cold protection, at least in citrus. Right. Any any common mistakes that are made out there? Well, I would caution. I don't know if it's a mistake, but I think it's very important that you understand the potential for evaporative cooling if you're going to use irrigation for cold protection, which relates back to the wet bulb. But it also considers the dryness of the air, the amount of wind that you're having, and what that evaporative potential is. So a mistake could be turning your irrigation system off too early or potentially having a situation where you might not get it on in time and if you wait too long and your emitters freeze so you need to have that kind of i mean i don't think these mistakes are made very often but there are considerations that you need to understand is if you're going to make a decision to run that cold protection you're going to know you're going to have to know when you're going to turn it on and you're going to have to turn it on before you have any freezing occurring in that irrigation system that's going to prevent you from having that operate properly and conversely, at the end of the evening or the next day, when it's time to turn off 
the irrigation for cold protection, you're going to want to know that it's safe to do that, and that's when you need to have some of this information as far as the wet bulb temperatures and the, you know, the evaporative cooling potential that may be occurring um, when you make those decisions. Yeah. So it says data is very important during these events, and staying on top of what's happening in real time is is pretty critical. It sounds like. Uh, anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, no, I just um, hopefully we'll have a uh, mild winter, and uh, with the current weather patterns, the climate patterns, um, typically we're hopeful that um, that things will go well this winter, and we won't have to dodge any cold weather. Well, I think that's a good thing to hope for, and I know the growers are feeling the same way. Chris, appreciate you joining us today. Certainly, Frank, anytime. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.